0: This is 29th of October 1967, in Stoke Newington, North-East London. An earlier downpour has left the street damp and cold, and the street lamps cast dull yellow pools on the glistening pavement. Jack, the Hat McVitie, adjusts his trademark Trilby hat, lifting the collar of his coat to keep the chill from his neck. He's on his way to a party on Evering Street, along with a number of the criminals and gangsters he's grown up with. Jack has worked for a number of gangs in his time, including The Firm, run by the vicious Cray twins who rule East London with a vice-like grip. In fact, he was recently given a large chunk of cash by the Crays to kill one of their former associates, Leslie Payne. Payne was the financial wizard behind the Crays' long firm frauds and had made them a lot of money over the years. But they'd parted ways because Payne wasn't comfortable with the twins' escalating and unnecessary violence. The Crays feared that Payne may start informing on their activities to the police. So they paid Jack the Hat to get rid of him. Well, he still hasn't done that. And instead, he's been blowing the Crays' cash on drugs, fueling his growing addiction. If he's lucky, he'll be able to score some more at the party tonight. Arriving at his destination, Jack sets his shoulders, trots down the steps to the basement flat and knocks on the door. Stepping inside, Jack is surprised to find the party atmosphere absent and the room ominously silent. He'd been expecting a lively scene, filled with friends from the criminal underworld. Instead, waiting for him are Reggie and Ronnie Cray. His heart sinks. Not a party, but a setup. As the door closes behind him, Reggie steps forward, raises a gun to Jack's head, and pulls the trigger. The gun doesn't fire, and Jack lets out a laugh of relief, thinking Reggie just did it to scare him. But Reggie's face changes, anger and frustration colouring his dark features. His lip curls into a snarl, and he levels the gun again, pulling the trigger again. Once more, Jack is relieved that the gun doesn't fire, but he's no longer thinking this is a joke. Reggie wants him dead. He stutters his pleas for clemency, but Reggie ignores him. Sensing an impending end, Jack the Hat makes a break for the nearest window, flinging it open and trying to climb out. No chance. As he's pulled back, still begging for his life, Ronnie laughs at him. Stand up and take it like a man, he says. But I don't want to die like a man, Jack the Hat burbles. Ronnie grabs him, holding him in an unbreakable bear hug, and Reggie steps up, brandishing a huge knife. Jack screams. It's too late. He's stabbed in the face and stomach. As he drops to the floor, life fading, Reggie steps over him and plunges a knife into his neck. He never should have crossed the craze but Jack the Hats murder will prove to be a key event in their downfall. I'm John Hopkins, and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers. As we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history.
1: You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favourite shows to getting your favourite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into.
0: Scotland Yard have been working hard to bring the craze to justice for a number of years and have faced nothing but silence and obstruction. Rumours of brutal violence, fraud, extortion, racketeering, and even murder abound. But they can't get anyone to go on the record. Any witnesses they find plead ignorance. Even the rare ones who will say what they saw won't commit to an official statement, so their information is useless. With two failed trials for extortion against the craze already behind them, the country's finest detectives, are still searching for a way to dismantle the twins' firm, once and for all. By 1967, Nipper Reed has been promoted to detective chief inspector. He has just joined the murder squad, the creme de la creme of Scotland Yard, and his new assignment is to bring down the craze. The brothers are old foes of Nipper's. His previous attempts to take the twins off the streets ended in frustration and disappointment. Back in 1965, he had investigated their criminal business dealings, looking at long-firm frauds, which are operations that hide behind a reputable company, gaining a credit record and getting investment, before vanishing with all the cash. The case Nipper brought to trial fell apart, though, and the craze walked, their reputation bolstered, by the police's failure to send them down. But things are a little different now from two years ago. The murder squad has recently had a huge coup, arresting pretty much all of the Cray's rivals, the Richardson Gang. A fight had happened in a South London club in 1966, which led to the fatal shooting of the Cray's cousin, Dickie Hart. The ensuing investigation resulted in a big sweep, capturing most of the Richardson Gang. After such a big win, Scotland Yard now feel emboldened to take down the Twins. Feeling like he has unfinished business with the Krays, Nipper agrees to the command, on the proviso that he can handpick his team. He needs people he can trust, not any of the cops feeding information to the Krays in exchange for dirty money. They set up shop in Tintagel House, over the river from Scotland Yard. Still not sure if any of the officers in the Yard are Cray informants, Nipper is keen to keep this investigation secret for now. Under the guise of conducting a high level disciplinary inquiry into a major corruption allegation, Nipper and his small team are able to begin what will be a six month investigation into the activities of the Crays and their firm. If he plays his cards close to his chest, bides his time, Nipper might just be the man who takes down the craze. Currently, the Craze are suspected of two murders. The first is the shooting of George Cornell at the Blind Beggar Pub. Word on the street is it was Ronnie that pulled the trigger, but no one will testify. Nipper is also tracking the recent disappearance of Jack the Hat McVitie, and there are rumors that he has in fact been killed. But again, no one will talk to the police. Finally, Nipper is investigating the rumor that the Crays were involved in the prison break of Frank the Mad Axeman Mitchell, a good friend of Ronnie Cray's. Frank had been part of a group of prisoners working on the moor on the 12th of December 1966. Somehow, allegedly with the Crays' help, he slipped away and hasn't been seen since. While a prison break is nowhere near the crime of murder, if Nipper can bring the craze in on one charge, any charge, it may just lead to further convictions. Given that no new evidence against the craze has been added to any file since he last worked on them two years before, Nipper and his team will be almost starting from scratch. Determined not to fall into the same trap as his first investigation into the craze, Nipper decides not to investigate the murder of George Cornell or the disappearance of Jack the Hat McVitty, or Frank Mitchell just yet. He knows that unless he can take the whole gang off the streets, he won't get the flood of witnesses he needs to make any of those charges stick. To get the craze, he'll have to go after the whole firm at the same time. The problem is where to start. Nothing has changed in the East End since Nipple was last here and the Cray's grip is still all-powerful. But sometimes, the best ideas come from the criminals themselves. You see, the Cray's often boast that nobody leaves the firm. But with a little digging, Nipper realises that's not completely true. Some of the old boys have slipped away, citing old age or health issues. They now lurk on the fringes, still aware of the Cray's power but no longer enthralled to them. Nipper creates a list of 32 such people, assessed to work needling them for information. It's a risky strategy, because he's trying to keep his investigation quiet, at least for now. Any one of the people on his list could go straight back to the craze and tell them their old adversary, Nipper Reed, is on the prowl again. But it's a risk he's willing to take. When he made the list, He only included names who are so distanced from the Krays now that even if they refuse to speak, they're unlikely to go running back to the Twins. All he really wants is one person, a start, who will talk. Enter Leslie Payne, the financial wizard who had set the craze up with all those long firms. He and Nipper had a number of run-ins during Scotland Yard's investigations into the long-firm frauds, and he has a grudging respect for the detective. Nipper, in turn, recognizes that Payne is intelligent and an incredible con man who doesn't suffer fools. Having sparred several times before, this first meeting after a couple of years feels more like a catch-up with an old friend. They sit down for coffee and an informal chat, in which Nipper assures Payne he will be treated fairly if he talks. Payne says he left the firm because he couldn't control or manage all the unnecessary violence. He likes to think of himself as a cultured man, and their brutalism and stupidity didn't sit well. Payne isn't shy in criticizing the brothers. As Nipper leaves the interview, he has a good feeling he may be able to persuade Payne to turn on the craze. During their second meeting, Nipper makes an offer. If Payne provides a statement, Nipper will do everything he can to get him protection from prosecution. He also guarantees him that any statement taken will not be seen by anyone apart from him. Does that include the yard? Payne asks. Nipper assures him it does. Sensing he is about to turn, Nipper gives him one last prod. Have you heard you're on the list? He asks. Payne knows exactly what he means. Ronnie's notorious hit list of people he wants to get rid of. Payne asks. No, of you. Nipper has no idea if Payne is really on the list, but from the con man's expression, he thinks his gamble has worked. Unbeknown to Nipper, Payne does actually know he's on the list. Both Krays have made it clear they think he's likely to turn, and Payne has heard from a couple of sources that he's at risk. Payne was far too deeply implicated in the Krays' criminal activities to ever have gone to the police of his own volition. But with an offer of protection from Nipper and a possible hit out on him from the Krays, he has nothing to lose and everything to gain. Payne agrees to Nipper's offer and gives a statement. To ensure complete privacy, Nipper conducts the interviews in a library in a quiet police section house over in Marylebone. Starting in early January 1968, Leslie Payne arrives at 9am every day to give his statement. It takes three full weeks of daily meetings to get it all taken down and he spills everything from how he made the craze of fortune through setting up the long firm frauds to their sales of stolen bonds and forged currency. He also details their dealings in drugs, blackmail and assaults, as well as given a wealth of information about the day-to-day workings of the firm. In total, Payne's statement is a whopping 146 pages long and is full of names for Nipper and his team to follow up. After all this time searching for someone brave enough to testify against the Krays, Nipper, finally, has a real breakthrough. With Payne's help, other names start agreeing to talk too. His statement has opened a floodgate, and scores of the crazes disgruntled former associates agree to talk. Perhaps because of Payne's reputed ability to charm the birds from the trees, Nipper takes him along to meet several of the witnesses he's trying to turn. And it works. Statement after statement comes in, and the case against the Krays, focused largely around their dealing in stolen bonds, takes shape. Nipper's cause is gathering momentum. Annoyingly, because no one is supposed to know about his secret operation, he still has to be available as part of the murder squad to help on other cases. An unwanted interlude sees him shipped to Dublin to investigate the murder of a sex worker by an army officer. By the time he returns, his cover has been blown. Someone in the yard has leaked his operation to the press and he returns to the headline Gangbusters move in on the top mob in the Sunday Mirror. Just to add weight to his shoulders, Nipper learns from an informant but a contract has been put out on both him and Leslie Payne by the Crays. The clock is ticking even faster now, but there's still a long way to go. In April 1968, Nipper gets a breakthrough which hurries things along further. Thanks to a wiretap he has in place, he learns that one of the Crays' close associates, Alan Bruce Cooper, is sending a man to Glasgow to collect something for the Crays. Assuming the collection to be suspect, Nipper tells colleagues in Glasgow to surveil the transaction. Sure enough, Cooper's envoy picks up a suitcase. When he's arrested, boarding a flight back to London, it turns out the package contains sticks of dynamite. Nipper races up to Glasgow to interview the hapless mule. After the initial, obvious denials, the young man tells Nipper a story so wild, at first he doesn't believe it. His statement goes that he was supposed to rig the car of a well-known club owner, George Karuna, and blow him up. With Karuna out of the way, the craze would have a stake in the biggest club syndicate in London. The man tells Nipper that this car bombing plot was a direct order from Alan Bruce Cooper on behalf of the craze. Though his account seems far-fetched, Nipper feels there's enough in it to warrant a conversation with Cooper.
2: Behind every missing person is a story to be told. Look closely at the details and you may just find the answers. Find the answers, find the truth. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases, tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. From the tragedies of Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh Jr. to the mysterious circumstances surrounding Tiara Williams and the Iguala Mass kidnapping, each week on Disappearances, we're spotlighting the stories you thought you knew, and the ones you'll be shocked to discover. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The truth is out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Pulling Cooper in for interview, Nipper confronts him with the statement he's just taken in Glasgow. He tells Cooper he can either face a conspiracy to murder charge on his own or make a statement against the Cray's. Cooper chooses a second option. He confirms that the intended car bombing was a contract killing for the Cray's. He also talks about their deals in stolen bonds, especially selling to the USA. In fact, he tells Nipper that an influential member of the New York Mafia, Joey Kaufman, is due in London to discuss just that. Nipper, has more than enough to hold Cooper on, thanks to his role in all of the deals, but arresting him will cause an even bigger problem. Cooper has been in daily contact with the craze, and if that changes now, they'll know something is up. Rumour has it that if people close to them start getting nicked, they have a plan to flee the country, and Nipper can't risk that. But he also can't turn Cooper loose knowing he'll rush straight back and tell the Crays what has happened. Remembering that Cooper has a bad ulcer, Nipper gets a doctor friend to admit him to a private clinic on Harley Street on the pretense that the ulcer has got worse. While Nipper's with him at the clinic, he gets Cooper to call Ronnie Cray and tell him he's unwell and he's in Harley Street. Ronnie buys the excuse and says he'd love to visit but he's too tired after a weekend trip. And that's that. Problem temporarily averted. But it won't last long. Nipper is just leaving the clinic when a visitor arrives for Cooper, none other than New York mafioso, Joey Kaufman. It's an unexpected bonus and Nipper eavesdrops on their conversation. Kaufman, loud and brash, talks openly about the upcoming stolen bonds deal giving Nipper further evidence to use against the Krays. Cooper's stay in the clinic can only be temporary, though. It's insanely expensive, and the Krays will expect to see him back out and about again soon. So after a few days, Nipper has him moved to a safe house in Surrey and hurries back to his headquarters to put a plan into action. Time's up. He has to act on everything they've got so far and hope it's enough. Obviously, arresting the whole firm at the same time is going to take a lot of manpower, and that raises the risk of a leak. Determined not to make any mistakes this time, Nipper calls the DIs in each of the 10 regional crime squads around London. He tells them to arrange for their men to be available at short notice. Their only other instruction is to call them at midnight. When those calls come in, he puts them all off until 3.30am still giving them no further information on the mission. He's keeping tabs on the movements of some of the more senior gang members, including the Krays. The timing of their swoop needs to be perfect if they're gonna get them all. When the DIs all call at 3.30, he tells them to gather their teams and report to Tintagel House at 4.30 a.m. Their brief is simple. Each team will enter a premises, arrest any occupants, and make a thorough search. One officer will remain on site to ensure no contact can be made with anyone who evades arrest. All suspects arrested are to be brought directly to West End Central, where empty cells are waiting. Teams are given firearms, photographs of all the suspects, and watches are synchronized. The game is finally afoot. Nipper saves the arrest of the craze for himself. Ronnie and Reggie were in the Asta Club until the early hours, having wined and dined mafioso Joey Kaufman all night. They're currently tucked up in their mother's council flat on the ninth floor of Braithwaite House in Shoreditch. At five to six, Nipper and three of his men climb into the lift and head up to the apartment. As they crowd around Mrs. Cray's front door holding their breath and straining their ears for signs of life within, their hearts sink as they hear the lift start to move again and the doors open on the ninth floor. Could this be one of the Cray's men? Were they about to lose their element of surprise? Fortunately, it was just the milkman who stepped out, a hanger of clanking bottles in hand. Before he can even call, Melko is bundled back into the lift by one of Nipper's men and escorted safely back to the ground floor. At 6 a.m., precisely, Nipper, Frank, and the two officers break open the door and pile in. Some minders are in the front room, but are too surprised by the sudden intrusion to put up much of a fight and are quickly cuffed. Ronnie is found in bed with a young man, Reggie with a young woman all of them are arrested. And at exactly the same time, all across town, countless other firm members are also being detained. Back in West End Central Police Station, the cells are bursting with the Craze associates. Even Joey Kaufman, the New York mobster, has been arrested. With dozens of individual charges to be brought and laid, the team has its work cut out, but the sense of momentum is palpable. They've got the lot of them. Well, almost. With the craze and most of the firm off the streets, Nipper hopes that he might get some of those reticent key witnesses to talk. He quickly learns that he is wrong again. Until they're safely convicted and locked away, the view is that the craze can still get to people. No one else will talk. Nipper must now work fast to get the massive evidence they have in some kind of order and submitted to the Department of Public Prosecutions. More importantly, it needs to make sure that none of the witnesses they will rely on in trial get corrupted before they can be heard. Some firm members evaded arrest altogether when the sweep happened. Others, now out on bail, have a vested interest in silencing any informants. Around the clock, police watch is put on all major witnesses, and they're all moved to safe houses around the home counties. Meanwhile, Nipper has charged a team of 36 hand-picked officers to round up any of the firm who avoided arrest in that first sweep. This has the unexpected effect of spooking a number of the gangsters into coming forward. It seems some just can't stand the pressure of waiting for the inevitable knock to come. One of those is Leslie Dunn. Terrified that he's either about to get arrested or silenced for good by the firm, he turns himself into Nipper on the 13th of May 1968. A wiry, nervous man, Dunn asks to make a statement, and it turns out to be explosive. Dunn explains how he has spent years trying to ingratiate himself with the craze. He finally thought he'd hit his stride when they asked for his flat keys and told him a friend would be staying with him for a while. That friend turned out to be none other than Frank the Mad Axeman Mitchell. Nipper had heard that the brothers were involved in springing Mitchell from prison, but suspiciously, he'd disappeared since. Now, Dunn provides full details of Mitchell's stay at his flat and of the fugitive's growing frustration as still being a virtual prisoner despite having women, food and drink provided. He tells how Mitchell had threatened to go and confront the craze himself and how shortly after that he was taken from the flat by Big Albert Donahue. Dunn says that he heard four shots from the street below and Mitchell hasn't been seen since. Dunn's statement is the first time someone has officially implicated the Craze in a murder. Even if Dunn turns out to be a credible witness, one statement alone, especially from someone who didn't even see the crime take place, isn't going to be enough. Nipper will need another witness to corroborate what Dunn said. Luckily, Dunn has given him the name of the man in charge of guarding the fugitive, Billy Exley. Billy was one of the men arrested in Nipper's big sweep. He's out on bail now, but not too hard to find, and he is easily convinced to talk. The craze hold over their men is loosening with each piece of evidence leaked. Not only does Billy confirm the details in Dunn's statements, he leads the team to the girl who was provided to keep Mitchell company during his stay. She confirms that she also heard shots on the night Mitchell was removed and says that Donahue returned to the flat and made a call in which he said, the dog is dead. He then apparently cleaned up the entire apartment, removing any trace of Mitchell. Despite not having a body to confirm it, Nipper now feels he has enough evidence to bring a case for the murder of Frank Mitchell. Three weeks after their arrest, the Crays, still reminded in custody, now get their first
1: murder charge.
0: Nipper is still under pressure to find more evidence. Every statement has been hard won, so he is surprised when a man called Charlie Mitchell asked to see him. Nipper had asked everyone they'd arrested if they would make a statement, and most declined. Charlie Mitchell had been the most hard-nosed of the lot. He'd refused to answer a single question about anything without his solicitor present. Now, though, you can sense that the ship is sinking, and like the rat he is, is jumped. He gives a long and detailed statement, given all the facts about the Cray's activities over the years. His statement corroborates a lot that Nipper already knows, but it proves to be exactly the break he'd been looking for. When they hear that Charlie Mitchell has turned, the witnesses flock forward. Finally, Nipper has just about enough evidence to get a conviction against Ronnie Cray. But if he wants to bring them both down at the same time, he needs something concrete on Reggie, too. Nipper lands a huge break when Ronnie Hart, the Cray's cousin, agrees to talk and his statement implicates Reggie in the murder of Jack, the hat, McVitie. Nipper had heard rumors that McVitie had been killed, but with no body and no evidence, the case had stagnated. Hart now explains exactly what had happened. After Ronnie Cray killed George Cornell, he began putting pressure on Reggie to commit a murder too. Cornell had been Ronnie's first kill, and he wanted his brother to have the same honor. McVitie was chosen as the victim simply because he was available, not because he had kept the money he was paid. Ironically, it was Leslie Payne, Nipper's first big witness, who had been supposed to kill. How differently things might have gone for Nipper had McVitie done the job? According to Hart, McVitie was invited to a party in a North London flat. But when he arrived, there was no party, just two angry and murderous craze. As he walked through the door, Reggie tried to shoot him. When the gun failed to go off, Ronnie held him while Reggie stabbed him to death. The body was then apparently wrapped in a bedspread and disposed of in South London. Hart's detailed statement is exactly the nail in the Cray's coffin that Nipper needs. Names, dates, and the full gory details of a murder, it's all there. The evidence comes just in time to present at the remand hearings. Trial by jury is set to begin on the 8th of January 1969 at the Old Bailey. The trial of Ronnie and Reggie Cray is, of course, a media circus. Scores of people line the streets outside the Old Bailey to cheer and boo as the defendants are driven past. Inside the courtroom, the atmosphere is no less charged. The Crays are certainly making the most of their time in the limelight. Usually defendants have an air of unkempt defeat about them by the time they come to stand trial here. But Ronnie and Reggie Cray arrive dressed in their finest suits, hair neat, ties straight, composure immaculate. They half bow to the judge, nod to the jury every time they're brought up and make sure to greet their beloved mother. It is all designed to suggest they know how to behave properly and give the impression that they are the upstanding company directors they claim to be. As the trial progresses, the Crays maintain their composure, even as statement after statement is read from their former friends and associates. Their confidence that this will all blow over Seems impenetrable, but Nipper and the prosecution team have one more arrow to sling, and it's a sharp one. A witness named Mrs. X is called to the stand. Nipper Reed can't help but smile to himself as she makes her oath. This is the first time he feels sure that justice will be done. Mrs. X, you see, is none other than the barmaid from the Blind Beggar an actual eyewitness to the murder of George Cornell. She has already identified the killer in her written statement. Slowly, gently, she is led through her testimony. The prosecution finally arrives at the important question. Can you please look around the courts and point out the man who shot George Cornell? She wastes no time, saying as clearly as she can muster, Over there, Ronald Cray. She then goes on to point out Ian Barry as the second man involved and fills in details of the nights and the events after the shooting. The trial lasts 39 days in total, with dozens of witnesses heard and hours of cross-examination completed. On Tuesday, the 4th of March, 1969, it all comes to an end. Ronnie Cray and Ian Barry are convicted of the murder of George Cornell, and Reggie is convicted as an accessory after the fact. Based on the witness testimony Nipper has gathered, both twins are convicted of the murder of Jack the Hat McVitie. Leonard, Nipper, Reed, and his team have done it. They finally and conclusively caught the Crays and brought them to justice. The following morning, Nipper is back in court to hear the sentences read out. Ronnie is first to face the judge, who is clear and concise. Ronald Cray, he says, I'm not going to waste words on you. The sentence upon you is that you will go to life imprisonment. In my view, society has earned a rest from your activities, and I recommend that you be detained for 30 years. Put him down. Reggie follows, also with a 30-year detention imposed. The gavel falls and the trial is over. And that's it. What feels like a lifetime of work is over. Convictions secured. Even Nipper has tears in his eyes when the sentences are handed down. The crazed grip on the east end has been broken, once and for all. For Leonard Nipper Reed, the war against the Craze became very personal, at times consuming him completely, but it proved to be the most famous investigation of his career. His name will forever be synonymous with the relentless determination required to bring down the most divisive, intimidating, controlling, and downright psychotic gangsters in London's history. A true gangbuster. He earns his place as one of Scotland Yard's finest. Next week on Scotland Yard Confidential. We travel back to London at the height of World War II. A blackout has been imposed to shield the city from German bombers carrying out a ruthless bombing campaign known as the Blitz. But in the darkness, a different type of terror roams the streets. A killer so sadistic that he would be named after London's most notorious murderer, Jack the Ripper. In a six-day spree, four women are dead and two have been brutally attacked. Can the detectives of Scotland Yard apprehend the Blackout Ripper before he kills again? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Written by Sean Coleman. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres Solé. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dorothy.
2: Hi, listeners. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades-long disappearance. Now, every Thursday, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.